Before I get into my message this morning, just want to thank Pastor Jim for the opportunity to bring the word, and I pray that you continue to bring some more sunshine here, because this weather in Erie, right, this weekend has been phenomenal, phenomenal, so uh, we need a little bit more of that, because who knows, it's probably going to snow tomorrow, right, in Erie, you never know, <laughs> you never know, um, but I also want to thank our online community as well, wherever you are watching. Thank you so much for joining us, um, or maybe you're watching the replay of this. We see you, and thank you for joining us online, even though you might not be able to make it this morning. I know God can still reach you this morning. So if you are either a parent or you have worked with children, raise your hand. So yeah, lots of us, right? Lots of us. For those that have raised their hand, how many of us know that kids have absolutely no filter? Right? Listen, we're in youth ministry. Even the teenagers have no filter sometimes. They are brutal. They are brutal. And as the, the saying goes, kids say the darndest things. Right? Uh, I recently just switched jobs, and I now work at the Early Learning Center here at the church. Um, I work with 10 four-year-olds all day, Monday through Friday, 7.30, yes, 7.30, 7.30 to 4.30, right? And they are at this prime age where they will say what comes to their mind. They have no filter, and um, not only that, they just ask a billion and one questions a day. So I'll have kids ask me, oh, Miss Caitlin, why are you cutting something like that? You know, what? where is Mr. Bailey? Uh, why am I sitting like that? Why do you have that sweater on today? Uh, why is that paper towel there? Where is Mr. Bailey? Uh, what does your hair look like that today? Uh, where is Mr. Bailey? What are we going to do today? Where is Mr. Bailey? Where is Mr. Bailey? Where is Mr. Bailey? Mr. Bailey's a fan favorite with my class <laughs> this year. Um, but their questions, it is never ending. It's never ending. And, um, but also they're brutal. So I've also been called, you know, their best friend. I've been called trash. I've been called a pretty princess. And I've also been told I look like a bug. So, I mean, kids really will just say whatever comes to their mind. They're brutal, right? And I'm sure a lot of us have stories of things kids have said. Uh, and some, of us, some people have taken what their kids have said to Twitter, all right? So let's check out some tweets this morning. All right, let's pull up that first one. All right, four-year-old, can we get a kitten? Me, I'm allergic. We can't be in the same house. Four, you could sleep outside. Easy solution, right? Easy solution. You could just sleep outside. All right, let's go to another one. Me, someday you'll have feelings for boys. Six-year-old, I already have feelings for them. Me, really? Six, they make me mad. <laughs> Come on, that's awesome. That is awesome. All right, one more. We'll show one more. Six-year-old, why do bad guys always try to take over? Me, they want to be in charge and make all of the rules. Six, why don't they just become moms? Come on, all the moms in the house said amen, right? Come on. <laughs> but they're hilarious. And like I said, that we are in about, they are not the only ones who have questions. This series that we are in about heaven, the mystery, and majesty collide, we've covered a lot of questions that we have in regards to heaven, right? We discuss what the Bible says about heaven, what it'll be like, what we will do, uh, what we will wear. We talked about how to get to heaven, and we talked about how to stay on the path towards heaven. We all have so many questions. And all of us at one point in our lives has also asked the question, what will happen when I die? When I take my last breath here on earth, 
What will happen? Where will I go? Now, whether that question was sparked by a death of a loved one, maybe it was a medical diagnosis that came up, or maybe just a really dark season in your life, um, many of us have asked this same question. And we've considered this question a lot throughout the series in regards to heaven, right? We believe in the reality of heaven, right? We believe in the word of God and what the, the Bible says, right? We believe that heaven is a real place for those that profess their, that for those who profess their faith in Jesus, that they will, that's where they'll go. They'll go to heaven. However, if we believe in this, we also must believe that there is a place that exists where souls go that do not enter heaven, right? This real biblical place is called hell, and this is what we are going to talk about this morning. So buckle in. It's a hard topic, so um, it'll be good. So hell, right, is used as an exclamation, an interjection, a noun, right? The word hell is frequently used in the English language, but it is one of the least talked about. This is the context that many of us are solely familiar with, right? We'll use this word maybe when we stub a toe, right? But many of us are unfamiliar uh, with the actual biblical place of hell. Hell is hard to digest, and it's really hard to talk about, even as Christians who believe the Bible. Uh, a lot of times we just ignore uncomfortable things and just kind of hope they go away. We sweep it under the rug. Maybe we read our Bible and we see something about hell and we just kind of skip to the next verse, you know. But I'm grateful to be in a church that doesn't back away from hard topics, right? We had a whole series this summer on hard topics, on these, these hot-button issues. And I'm thankful for a leadership and a church family who chooses to believe what the Bible says this morning, uh, that we're not going to bypass something that's hard just because it makes us uncomfortable or it makes us hard or it is hard that we're going to choose to believe what the Bible says, what God says in his word, more than what the world will want us to believe. So this topic of hell is hard, and this doctrine of hell should be hard for us to think about. Uh, if I've heard it said, you know, if our hearts are never moved with deep sorrow when we contemplate the biblical doctrine of hell, then there's a serious deficiency in our spiritual and emotional sensibilities. This should be hard for us this morning. C.S. Lewis once wrote, there is no doctrine which I would more willingly remove from Christianity than this, if it lay in my power. But it has the full support of scripture, and especially of our Lord's own words. It has always been held by Christendom, and it has the full support of reason. Though it may be a hard and uncomfortable topic, hell has not evaporated this morning. It does not cease to exist simply because we don't believe in it or because we're uncomfortable talking about it. As C.S. Lewis said, it has the full support of Scripture, and Jesus talked about it often. And if we believe in the mystery and the majesty of heaven, what we've been talking about for the past five weeks, we have to believe in the sobering truth of hell. In fact, Jesus spent more time warning people about the dangers of hell than he did comforting them with the hope of heaven. I'm going to say that again because some of you didn't catch it. Jesus spent more time warning people about the dangers of hell than he did about comforting them with the hope of heaven. In all of scripture, Jesus talked about this more than anyone else. So the concept of a real 
conscious, forever and ever existence in hell is just as biblical as a real, conscious, forever and ever existence in heaven. Trying to separate them um, is simply not possible from a biblical standpoint. There are also many popular standpoints that we see um, that will try and lessen and soften the idea of hell. Um, There are those that teach annihilationism. And this is the belief that souls and their punishment will eventually come to an end. Um, However, not only is this unbiblical, but it's unjust because then every sinner is treated the same. Um, Those that believe in this also believe that when you go to hell, you just kind of cease to exist. Um, There's no punishment or destruction, there's just nothing. Yet the narrative we read in scripture tells us consistently about an eternal punishment for those who refuse to follow Christ. There's no end to this reality, just like there's no end to heaven. On the flip side, another belief people may take is called universalism. This is the idea that everyone will end up in heaven one day. And this line of thinking believes that God will reconcile everyone to Christ. However, this belief takes verses out of context that really should be read as a hyperbole, such as when Jesus says in John 12, 32, that he will draw all people to himself, or in Acts 3, 21, where it talks about the restoration of all things, which God promised. Everyone could be saved, but contrary to belief, how many of us know that not everyone wants to be saved? Some will also teach probationism that endorses that every lost person will be given a second chance to repent. And what we see in the Bible is that the Old Testament kind of outlines the framework on hell, while the New Testament elaborates on it. But Jesus is the the one most responsible for defining hell. He did not teach annihilationism. He did not teach universalism. He did not teach probationism. What Jesus warned those who would listen, um, he, would, he warned those about a real hell. He described it as the lake of fire which was prepared for the devil and his helpers. And that's the truth of hell this morning is that it was not even created for us. It was originally created for the devil and his helpers. However, sin has corrupted so much, so much. I'll get to that a little bit later. Um, Jesus talks about a hell that's eternal where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. And, where, and when Jesus talks about hell, he uses this word Gehenna, right? Gehenna was a literal place in Israel. It was a valley that was so repulsive that Jesus used it as kind of a word picture um, for hell. Wicked men would offer child sacrifices there, and it was a dumping ground for sewage and refuse in in the city. You would see fires constantly burning to try and destroy the garbage and the impurities. This picture was an illustration of the final judgment of the wicked that Jesus used. And probably the most heart-wrenching aspect of hell is what 2 Thessalonians 1.9 says, they will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Shut out from the presence of the Lord. Hell is the absence of God in his presence. Contrary to what we see on TV or in movies, hell is not going to be a concert. It's not going to be a party. You're not going to be sitting with your drinking buddies having a good time. It is the absence of God And the absence of joy, it's the absence of peace and rest. 
Jesus constantly contrasted hell with the kingdom of God. Hell is the only alternative to an eternity spent in God's kingdom. It's the opposite of perfect fellowship with God forever. So we are going to dive in this morning. It seems, it seems a little dark right now, right? But there is hope. There is hope this morning that God made a way out. And we'll get to that. But we are going to dive into Jesus' most popular, longest, and most specific narrative about hell. If you have your Bibles this morning or you can look up on the screen, uh, we're going to turn to Luke 16. In this chapter, Jesus is talking with his disciples, and he begins to tell a story about a rich man and a, a beggar named Lazarus. We'll start at verse 19. It says this. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So let's stop here, church. The contrast we see between the rich man and Lazarus is stark. All right, so we have the rich man here, right? He is clothed in purple and fine linen. And this just shows how rich this rich man is. In the ancient world, purple dye was really hard to come by. It came from a tiny little gland in a snail. And in order to get enough purple dye to make a robe, you would need to break open at least 10,000 snails, Right? Only a very rich person could afford the snails and the servants to do that labor. But that's not all. This man uh, was also clothed in fine linen. And this was referring to Egyptian cotton, the rarest cotton in all of the ancient world. And this linen would have been used to make the rich man's undergarments. So basically what Jesus wants us to know is that this man is not just fancy pants, but his underwear is fancy too. Right? So he's real fancy. So we got the rich man over here. Not only is he dressed to the nines, but he also feasts extravagantly, all right? The middle class, soup and bread, kind of like my main diet as well, is just soup and bread, especially in the fall. But this man has a feast every single day, right? He was very, very wealthy. And then what we see with the rich man is in stark contrast to the poor man named Lazarus. He was lying at the gate of the rich man's house, Right? He was right there. He was in close proximity to this very wealthy, rich man. This means that Lazarus was a beggar. So how was Lazarus dressed? Scripture says he's covered in sores. And what did Lazarus eat? We're not told. We're only told that he desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. And any decent rich man would have taken care of the poor at his gates, right? You walk outside your house and there's, I mean, they're right there. So that would, a decent man would have taken care of them. And all we know is that this rich man's guard, that his dogs took better care of Lazarus than the rich man. They came and licked his sores and gave that soothing to him. So we see the stark contrast between this earthly possessions of the rich man and Lazarus, but we also see this eternal contrast between them in verses 22 to 23. In fact, it's just this great reversal, right? The poor man died, 
and was carried by angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried, but ended up in Hades in torment. And to make matters worse, you know, he was in hell. He was burning in hell. And what we see in this narrative is that he could see Lazarus in heaven. So the rich man then begins to engage in conversation with Abraham because Lazarus was standing right next to Abraham. And so our story continues in verse 24, and it says this. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let them warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. And he said to them, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone raises from the dead. And I believe, there's, so I believe there's many things that we can learn from this parable. I'm just going to highlight two points this morning. So we're going to break it down. Uh, point number one, we will receive our eternal due once we die. Point number two, we must repent and believe the gospel now before it's too late. So our first point today, let's break it down this morning. One, we will receive our eternal due once we die. Hebrews 9, 27 says this. People are destined to die once and after that to face judgment. All of us here will not live forever on earth, but we will all spend eternity somewhere. We are all destined to die once here on earth, and then we will face eternity. And we just read that Lazarus, that, excuse me, that the rich man asked Abraham to have mercy on him, right? To send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water to cool his tongues because of his anguish in the flames. So here we begin to see even more contrast, right? This whole story is just this great reversal um, between these two men uh, because the rich man showed absolutely no mercy to Lazarus during his lifetime. And now that the rich man's in a position of need, he wants Lazarus to show him mercy. The rich man has not repented. He never apologized to Lazarus. And he says to Abraham, send Lazarus to relieve my torment. And even in Hades, the rich man is is treating Lazarus like his slave. So here's the truth this morning. It was too late for the rich man. Food, he got a good steward with what he was given on earth. Sure, he had all the best clothes and all the food he could eat, but he didn't have faith in God and was too caught up in his own desires to care for the beggar outside of his own gates. It was too late. And we read in verse 25 that Abraham says, you received good things in your lifetime and Lazarus bad things. Now he's comforted and you're in anguish. It's as if Abraham is saying, what did you expect? If you would have made friends with Lazarus with your earthly wealth, you'd be received by Lazarus into into the heavenly dwellings. But you didn't. 
You took care of yourself and only yourself. And during your lifetime, you showed that you didn't need anyone's help. And now you'll get nobody's help. You're getting exactly what you wanted. Talk about a wake-up call for the rich man. Not only that, Abraham goes on in verse 26 to say that there's this great chasm that's been fixed. Nobody in heaven is going to hell and nobody in hell is going to heaven. Once you die, that's it. It's appointed for man to die once and then to come to judgment. Your chances to repent of your sins and turn to God are over after you take your last breath here on earth. We only have this one life given to us, church. And when we face our final judgment, it's just that, it's final. This narrative tells us that uh, after a person dies, they can't switch teams, right? Like some of you might want to do with your NFL teams right now. I'm talking about you Steeler fans. I'm a Steeler fan too. It's all right. We're struggling. We're struggling. But we can't switch teams. We can't switch teams. The rich man, he gives us this small snapshot of what one experiences in hell. As I mentioned previously, the Bible describes hell as being completely cut off from God's presence. It's described as fire, sulfur, a place of complete darkness, and the truth of hell should be a sobering reality for all of us here this morning. Jesus' teaching here is not symbolic. It's not figurative. Hell is a real place for those who reject God rebelling against his lordship um, over their lives and refusing God's grace. And the rich man sobered up real quick once he realized that the decision was final. It was too late for him. So what happens, he turns his attention then to his family. In verses 27 and and 28, he thinks, if Lazarus can't help me in hell, maybe he can get my brothers out of hell. So he says to Abraham, send Lazarus to warn my brothers so that they will not also come to this place of torment. So once again, the rich man is treating Lazarus like his slave. And Abraham responds, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. But that was not enough for the rich man. He wanted someone to come back from the dead. And finally, the rich man comes to the end of himself and sees what he needed. He needed to repent. And he saw that his brother's needed to repent. So that brings us to our second point. We must repent and believe in the gospel before it's too late. So let's take a step back. When we look at this story, the reason the rich man didn't show mercy to Lazarus, who was in need, was because he didn't see his own need for mercy. The rich man was self-sufficient, And that really lies at the heart of our narrative this morning, that we will only be able to experience God's generosity and his mercy. And I believe this is a concept that's really hard for us to grasp here in America. Um, We have a roof over our heads and we have food over our tables. Even the very lowest need in America, if you go into different third world countries, it's still the need is just so much different. Our level of need compared to Lazarus's need is completely different. And this is why it's vital for us to realize and truly understand our need for God. Because it's very easy for us in America to be self-sufficient. To say, you know what, I'll just, I'll pay for it, you know. I'll take care of it, I'll lean on a friend. 
It's vital for us to realize our need for God. What has sin done? Sin has separated us from God. And when we experience this mercy and this grace and the love of God, then we will be able to give that to others. It starts with our need. Our love for Christ is based on how much he has forgiven us. Uh, Excuse me. Our love for God is based on our belief on how much he has forgiven us. And it's our perspective on sin that dictates the depth of our love for Christ. Sin separates us from God. And what Romans tells us is that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Sin hurts us. And in turn, it hurts the heart of God. God hates sin. He can't be near it because he is a holy and a righteous God. He can't be near sin. And scripture says that God has deep sorrow for the death of the wicked, for those that don't turn to him. And it would be a cruel and a distant God that would give us no option but to spend an eternity separated from him, an eternity in hell that we earned through our sins and our failures. And a common question um, I feel that arises in regards to hell is how could a, a loving God punish anyone with hell? And the Bible does passionate. Just because God is loving, however, does not mean that he loves everything. There are things that God hates. He doesn't love murder or abuse or selfishness or pride. No sin can come near a holy God. And it wouldn't be very loving of God to look at something like child abuse and say, well, I'm not really bothered by that. That's not our God. Because our loving God hates bad things, he does something about it. Sin must be punished and put to death forever. Only perfect things are allowed in God's perfect kingdom. And one day, God will right every wrong. Not one injustice, not one act of pain, not one transaction of torture will be overlooked. Hell is permitted because God is both just and loving. So this is where the gospel becomes the greatest news to us. Remember I told you there's hope here in this narrative? Yes, we are all sinners. Yet, instead of punishment, we can spend an eternity in the presence of God. In God's love, he has done everything possible to deliver us from hell. But this is our choice God has created you with free will because he desires your voluntary affection more than some robotic devotion. I'm going to say that again because some of you didn't catch it again. God created you with free will because he desires your voluntary affection more than some robotic devotion. God will never force himself upon you. He's a gentleman. He provided the way, he opened up the way for us to come to him, but he is giving us the choice. He will allow you to make up your own mind in regards to his lordship. His justice requires that he punishes sin, but his love provides salvation freely to all who will accept it. Jesus gives us an invitation to believe the gospel, and to identify ourselves with him. Jesus said, whoever acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge before my Father in heaven. Jesus taught Nicodemus as well, and this is a common verse that we all should know. For God so loved the world 
that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only son. Whoever believes in the son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the son will not see life for God's wrath remains on him. God's wrath is there because of sin. But through Jesus, that wrath is evaporated. So God has done everything he can to keep you from going to hell. He gave his son to die for you while you were still a sinner. In our sin, in our brokenness, in our sickness, God has made a way out of our sin and out of our rebellion. Like I mentioned, we've all sinned and that sin will need punished. But a loving God gives us an option, and that option is that Jesus took that sin that needed to be punished. He bore that punishment in your place, and he took the full wrath of God so that you do not have to this morning. This is good news for us this morning. Jesus preached on hell on purpose. He wanted to bring people to a decision. The Bible mentions the wrath of God around 600 times in the Bible. The wrath of God is spoken to create in us a sense of urgency that we are under a death sentence, that the clock is ticking, and after this life, there is no second chance, and you cannot switch teams. We must get this thing straightened out now while we still have time. It's a fearful thing to pass an eternity without this assurance. And God tells you about the consequences of his wrath and the truth of hell so that we will have this sense of urgency, so that you will know that you are in dire need of a savior and then invite Jesus to come and rescue you from a hell that you're going towards. Jesus wanted people, he wanted to bring people to a decision and this morning is no different. The reason we are preaching on hell, I'm not preaching on hell to guilt you or to shame you into making a decision for Christ. This is not a decision that should be made out of emotion or fear, um, but just the truth of what God's word says. But how unloving would it be to not tell you the truth and the reality about your future if you decide to live independently from Jesus? The band can come on up. Evangelist D.L. Moody, he told a story about a minister who was preparing a sermon about the urgency of receiving Christ. He says this, after studying for some time, the preacher fell asleep in his chair and had a strange dream in which he overheard a conversation among several demons. They were huddled together trying to devise a scheme for leading people on earth into hell. One of the evil spirits said, let's tell people that the Bible is not the word of God and that it can't be trusted. The others responded, that's not enough. Another spoke up, let's tell them that God doesn't exist and that Jesus was not only a good man and that there really is no heaven or hell. Again, the others responded negatively. Finally, a third demon said, let's tell their people, let's tell these people that there is a God, a savior, and a heaven and hell. But let's assure them that they've got all the time in the world to be saved and encourage them to put off the decision. That's it, the other shouted gleefully. 
If you are in this place this morning and your life is not right with God, do not fall into the devil's trap. The Bible says that today is the day of salvation, not tomorrow, not next week, not when your life is in order or when you reach a certain age milestone. Tomorrow is not promised. Don't wait. And here's the truth this morning that you do not have to be perfect in order to come to Christ. You don't have to clean yourself up. You can come in your brokenness. You can come with your problems. You can come in your sin. And God welcomes you with open arms. We can come just as we are this morning. Would you stand with me today, church? So we've read Luke 16. We've looked at hell when we've talked about it, but talking about it is not enough. We have to make a decision. Where are you going to spend eternity? Maybe at some point in your life you've prayed a prayer. Uh, Maybe you were very dedicated to church and maybe you've been living far off from God recently. Maybe you're doing things your own way and you're ignoring God and his word. If that's you, you are just as lost as the person who has never dedicated their life to Christ. Maybe you are here today and maybe you're watching online and you've never made the decision to follow Jesus. Maybe this morning you realize you're ready. You're ready to dedicate or to desire with life direction and your eternal destination. I want you to pray this prayer with me. And if you don't fall into any of these categories right now, help me pray this together over those who are praying this, maybe for the first time. All right, would you pray this with me, church? Lord, I confess that I am a sinner and I need your forgiveness. I believe you died for my sins and rose from the dead. I turn from my sins and invite you to come into my heart and life. I wanna trust you and I wanna follow you as my Lord and Savior. Amen, amen. If you prayed that prayer, the best is yet to come. Tell somebody, maybe you came with somebody, tell them, tell me, come see us. We wanna get you plugged in, right? Because it is so important to stay connected, maybe through a life group. We have that join the family coming up in the next couple weeks. The best is yet to come that, that you are making that amazing decision to follow Christ. There's so much joy and hope in Christ. There's life in Christ. Now, I don't want to end here, church. Part of the story we read included the rich man pleading for his family. And if you have a loved one, maybe a, a family member, maybe you have a friend um, or a coworker who, who doesn't know Jesus, we are going to intercede for them. We, we sang this whole worship service we sang about God who is our way maker, who's our promise keeper. You know, he's the light in our darkness. Um, I wanna open up the altars here. Please don't feel the need to rush out of here, right? We still got a little bit of time, but please don't feel the need to rush out. 
the band is going to sing Waymaker and we're going to declare, we're gonna use this as a de declaration over your family, over your friends, over your coworkers and intercede that God would soften their hearts, that God would send the Holy Spirit to, to convict them of their sin and to convince them of their need for Christ this morning.